I will say I was surprised that Minnesota duck hunters haven't leaned in more on the two birds in the first 16 days of the regular season. On, on the point of teal season, Brett, remember for Minnesota to do a teal season. When I think about the, the, the flyway councils and people making these decisions, I'm picturing like a secret society of Illuminati in a darkened, <laughs> you know, basement with candles littering. Welcome to the show. I'm Brett Amundsen on North Dakota. You flat and windy United States waterfowl mothership. I miss you so much. You know, I used to live in North Dakota, and while I enjoy western Minnesota because of its prairie pothole-like similarity to the Dakotas, it just doesn't have what North Dakota has. While we've been seeing some good numbers of breeding ducks and geese around home, the North Dakota Game and Fish Department released its annual spring breeding waterfowl survey, and it showed the highest number of breeding ducks in North Dakota since 2014. We'll talk about what that means and why we might be seeing that increase with John Devney from Delta Waterfowl. Now, just in time for our show with John, we're introducing our new wildlife-themed travel mugs available at SportingJournalRadio.com, including this sleeping mallard, this drake blue-winged teal, and this pair of honkers taking advantage of the safety of a muskrat hut. There are some more on there for uh, pheasant and grouse lovers. Uh, there, if you like deer, there's uh, my favorite ghost deer, this white deer that I took a picture of a few years ago. And if you want to show off your American pride, you can pick up this bald eagle mug as well. Check out sportingjournalradio.com and click on store. Now, earlier this week, we did some uh, some pretty unique filming for Prairie Sportsman, which you can watch in all the PBS stations around Minnesota, including Pioneer, PBS, and Granite Falls. We got a tour of this tree house and it wasn't really like anything I'd ever seen before. You can watch for the segment on this coming up next season on Prairie Sportsman. Even uh, took a ride on a zip line. <laughs> it was pretty wild. Round two. Here we go. Nothing to it. Now, this week's show is brought to you by Haybell Heights Campground and Resort on Devil's Lake. A bunch of our friends, including Tony Crotty from Mid-Migration Outfitters, went up last week. I was hoping to go with them. I couldn't make it. Uh, they had a great trip despite having to deal with some windy conditions while they're up there. And that's just what happens on the big lakes. And it's been so windy lately. But uh, still had some great shore lunches. Uh, ate a bunch of fish. Caught a bunch of fish. You can plan your trip to Haybell Heights at haybaleheights.com. Also by Lake of the Woods Tourism, with the closure of the Canadian border uh, going until July 21st. Now they announced that they're going to extend the border closure. A lot of people are canceling their Canadian trip plans this summer. I'm not happy about it. But instead of going to Ontario, like our family has done for since I was 11 years old, uh, we're going to go to Lake of the Woods this, uh, this year instead. So you can plan your trip to Lake of the Woods at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. Uh, also by Tadson Lake Lodge in Northwest Saskatchewan. You heard me talking about the border closure. I should be in Saskatchewan right now at Tadson Lake Lodge. I'm not happy about not being up there. I understand the situation. But you can plan a trip for when the border opens. Maybe next summer you can get your trip planned now at tazenlake.com. Now it's time to talk ducks. Broadcasting from the Mid-Migration Outfitter Studios, this is the Finding Fur and Feathers Hunting Podcast. How much direction are you getting from the governor? The Minnesota DNR had reintroduced him into this area. I don't know, maybe you didn't want me to tell the story on the show, but I'm going to tell it anyway. I, I knew you were going to go there. I and close the entire hunting season. Oh, well, really? That's John Debney is a senior vice president at Delta Waterfowl. He's from Minnesota, but he lives in uh, Bismarck, North Dakota now. John, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brett. It's always good to catch up and talk, uh, talk ducks. I love talking ducks. Uh, let's talk weather for one second, though. Has it been as windy over there as it's been over here? 
Yeah, it's been unbelievably hot and windy and really pretty dry. Um, you know, I was out in the yard getting ready to go out and dog train yesterday morning and thought I was going to fall in a crack in my yard, which <laughs> is good as, you know, we just obviously saw the North Dakota Game and Fishes duck survey and it's really wet in the survey. But yeah, we've dried up a whole bunch and uh, it's kind of felt like the furnaces of hell here blowing 30, 40 miles an hour and real warm and we're sucking moisture off the landscape. That's for sure. I was going to ask you about that because it's it's been real dry over here, but I know I feel like parts of North Dakota have been fairly wet. And I was, you know, we saw the new results from the uh, the spring survey over in North Dakota. And I was gonna I was gonna try to make a correlation between wet conditions and a higher number in the breeding survey. But um, you guys haven't had much rain over there either, then, huh? No, I mean, I think what you're seeing primarily with the good water conditions that North Dakota game and fish reported is really a result of really wet last summer and incredibly wet last fall and not so much the spring precipitation. And, you know, this is kind of how we, how things used to be. Um, if you talk to most folks that lived on the prairies, we started with the wettest conditions and then conditions sort of degraded over time. You know, we know that, generally temporary and seasonals start to dry up over the course of the summer. The last, we've had a lot of years though in the last few years where we've actually, like last year, where we started okay and got wetter. Um, so this is more normal, I think, in terms of starting wet and sort of drying off a little bit. Um, there'll be some consequences for duck production as a result of that drying, although boy, we started so bloody wet that it's going to be hard to, uh, you know, hard for it to be too bad a story, at least coming out of the eastern Dakotas. I think that's kind of the way it was here, too, because we saw an early hatch with Canada geese. So we've seen a, a, I've seen a lot of those young geese getting getting pretty big already. We saw some good numbers of, uh, of ducks early, but now a lot of those seasonals and some of the sloughs and even uh, our big lakes have been dropping. Uh, it's been so dry. The, the levels have been dropping so much. Hopefully, you know, hopefully we got good production while we still had some of that water. And I want to talk about that survey a little bit because for the most part, Everything in that survey looked pretty good. There were a couple of species that numbers were down a little bit on, but overall, those duck numbers were pretty good, John. Yeah, water numbers were good. Duck numbers were really good. Um, I think pintail were had a little teeny dip, as did redheads. Um, but I don't necessarily, you know, the, the challenge with looking at a survey, this, the circumstance we find ourselves in this year is, we don't understand what's happening in South Dakota and Montana and Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta because, and God bless the North Dakota Game and Fish, they're the only people that census duck populations anywhere in North America this year, and real credit to them for keeping it going. I know it's a long-running data set, and they felt very importantly, but it's hard to put survey results in context when you're dealing with such a finite ge geographic area. Uh, my guess is the reason we probably saw a decline in pintail and redheads is they probably, both of those species really like to chase water. And frankly, they may have settled in South Dakota. So the fact that they're not part of the breeding population in North Dakota doesn't bother me that much just because I know how good the conditions are in Eastern South Dakota as well. Is that half of the state still underwater like, <laughs> like it has been? It's crazy wet. 
Um, you know, in southeastern North Dakota, it's the same way. Um, we know our ag producers are really struggling. They're talking yeah. a million, million and a half acres of prevent plant in North Dakota. Hmm. I haven't heard the same numbers out of South Dakota, but I have to imagine it's high. I talked to a farmer in southeastern North Dakota here about 10 days ago, and he said the corn the the corn crop that he planted last May was still standing 10 mm-hmm. days ago. So that tells you, you know, the wet conditions we had last fall really impeded harvesting and impeded some spring field work. And yeah, it's it's tough out there for folks. But yeah, crazy wet in the southeastern part of the North Dakota and big, big chunks of South Dakota. It's interesting to hear you talk about that because here where I'm at in Western Minnesota, we had some farmers get into parts of fields that they haven't been able to get into for years because of the drier conditions. Right. And last spring we had that prevent plant all over the place. And, right. and here's a side question I, I didn't really plan on asking you about, but uh, maybe you remember this discussion from last, from last fall, but with all that, all that cover crop or that prevent plant that was out there, that's what all the geese were using early in the season. Right. And, and there was a big debate and a big controversy over here about whether or not you could hunt fields like that. Right, right. Well, prevent plants a normal agricultural practice uh, as authorized by the USDA and ag extension folks. I think with the big acres of prevent plant, I think hunters probably encountered more of it than they ever have. And if you're especially a September Canada goose hunter, and those September Canada geese were going to stuff where there was nice green stuff out there. And I'm sure they were drawn into those fields. But um, I think it's that's more an issue with the landowner than it is with the feds in terms of baiting. So do you th- um, because it's a, it's a well-recognized, generally acceptable agricultural practice. Well, does it come down to how that farmer uh, uses that, that crop? Uh, because I think some farmers just knock it down or don't technically harvest it or, or they, I don't, I think there's a number of different things that they do. Does it come down to, I mean, literally does it come down to the CEO coming to a field and saying, Nope, this farmer did this to this, to this field. So we're going to, we're going to cite you for, for baiting. I mean, that's there. Yeah. It, in, in the case of most cover crops that were established as a result of prevent plant last year, they would have been a long way from being harvested. Um, you know, in this part of the world, you know, and more and more folks are doing cover crop practices and it's great because it improves soil health, it improves water infiltration, it helps with salinity. There's a lot of benefits of it, but really that farmer isn't going to do much with that acre really until next spring. In a lot of instances, some guys are using that as a forage source for cattle. Um, we'll turn cattle on use it as sort of pasture land and grazing land in the fall. But I couldn't see it. uh, I'd be hard pressed to imagine a situation where it would be manipulated in a way from the time it was planted to the time that a hunter in Western Minnesota during the September goose season would have been in any jeopardy of hunting over a manipulated field because it frankly hadn't been manipulated. It was an interesting discussion last year. I know we yeah, I can. we ended up because I think it almost came down to which conservation officer you talk to, and we got to the point where we were like, you know what, 
and we couldn't get on the fields. There's only a couple of them that the birds were using and we just couldn't get on them anyway, but we stopped trying because especially when we work with a guide, a guide service, we didn't want right. to take clients out into a situation like that and all of a sudden have a CEO show up. So we just, right. we just avoided yep. the whole thing. But do you think you could run into a, with, if there's that much uh, prevent plant in North Dakota this year, do you think that discussion could come up in North Dakota this fall? Well, it may. Um, I mean, I, there's a big press on NRCS is working hard as our uh, Senator John Thune from South Dakota and some other members of the House and Senate to provide more flexibility for producers to use cover crops in situations like this. And so, listen, that that tide is coming. I think there are just too many agronomic benefits and frankly, societal benefits from cover crop that we're not gonna see more and more of it on the landscape. And, and frankly, it's a good thing for ducks and duck hunters, I think in the long term as well. Um, but the notion that that stuff is being manipulated and not in a position to be harvest uh, hunted over seems pretty outlandish to me, frankly, just based yeah. on what I know about how cover crops are used. Yeah. And but the challenge, of course, the challenge is if you're a conservation officer in Big Stone County, Minnesota, you haven't seen a lot of cover crops, and they need to get up to speed on the learning curve as well. Let's talk uh, ducks. Let's get back to the to the survey in North Dakota and the nu- the, the duck numbers because both blue wing and green wing teal. We're way up this year, John. Well, yeah, and the blue wings are an important breeder here. Um, and anybody that's lived or driven through North Dakota in the spring knows when we have great water conditions, we're covered up with blue wing teal. Now, the green wing thing is, I don't know if it's an outlier. Uh, green wing don't normally nest in the prairies. They typically go into the parklands and into the boreal. They're more northern nesters. Um, I don't know if that's a function of survey chronology or what it is. Um, you know, it's the biggest green wing teal number by leaps and bounds. I'm just looking at, at the historical numbers here. I mean, way, way more numerous than we've ever counted. So I don't know if that's a, had something to do with the timing of the green wing migration, got a little slowed up uh, this year in, in comparison with other years. But uh, the number I'd take most stock in related to the really good teal numbers of blue wings because we know they're here. And and if we have high blue wing numbers like that, uh, I have to imagine had we done surveys in South Dakota, we would have found the exact same thing there. Well, obviously, the green wing teal heard about the border closure with Canada. And uh, yeah, well, that, that might be it. Maybe they heard Justin Trudeau didn't want them coming up either. Oh, man. I mean, we could dedicate a whole show to talking about Canada. I mean, I, so I was supposed to be in Saskatchewan right now, John, uh, up at Tazan Lake Lodge. And obviously that's not happening. And we're, we're kind of we kind of keep waiting to see when this border closure is going to end and try to make plans to get up there. I always thought for sure I'd get up by September at least to do some waterfowl hunting. I'm beginning to wonder if we're going to be able to go up and hunt in Saskatchewan or or Canada, for that matter, this fall, John. Well, I'm pretty hopeful we'll have it normalized. And it's pretty interesting. You know, I recognize nobody in Ottawa is thinking about Manitoba and North Dakota and the movement of hunters between Manitoba and and North Dakota. But Manitoba's got a trivial number of cases and doing exceptionally well. I haven't heard about Saskatchewan, but I'd imagine it is as well. And the likelihood of, I mean, again, I'm no, you know, 
I'm no medical expert, but uh, I tell you, I'm going to be pretty bummed out because I've got a few trips planned up there as well. And it cost me one snow goose trip this spring. I just assumed it didn't cost me trips to get up there this fall. Well, the biggest worry I know for Saskatchewan, at least for us, is where our lodge is, is way up by the Northwest Territories border, 60th parallel right. up there. And that northern part of Saskatchewan is very remote. There's a lot of small indigenous communities. They're, they're very, in fact, they closed off travel from southern Saskatchewan to northern Saskatchewan right. uh, just to try to protect those communities up there. So I know there's there's the worry of that. But yeah, I think overall the pr- provincial numbers are, are relatively small. And uh, Ontario, the, the camp owners up there were protesting a little bit the other day in the, the polite way that Canadians protest. Right. And uh, it's, you know, it's bad for business uh, no matter what. And I'm, I'm worried about it uh, one way or another. I agree. So one other uh, encouraging note, I want to get back to teal, especially blue wing teal, but I want to just uh, point out bluebill numbers were way up in that survey too. Yeah. And, and if, if you look at where, you know, if you look at the global bluebill number and you and I've talked about this stuff in the past, Brett, you know, bluebills have had sort of exhibited a long-term decline and, and we worked with Dr. Dave Coons, who grew up in Anoka, another Minnesota kid who's probably one of the best and brightest duck folks out there on the planet. We worked with him when he was at Utah State University and one of his graduate students. And he did a really interesting study where he parsed out the scop population across the entire breeding range. And what he found was the only place where scop were increasing uh, at the continental scale was in the eastern Dakotas. Hmm. And scop are an interesting duck because unlike redheads or canvasbacks, which nest over water, scop nests in the uplands, more like a gadwall or a shoveler. And all those years of good water conditions in the Dakotas, good wetland protection, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service easement program, and CRP, set up a great situation for lesser scop and their population have been consistent to climbing in the eastern dakotas over time to levels that had you talked to a duck manager in the 50s or 60s he or she never would have imagined that we'd have scop in the dakotas like we do Hmm. but scop are you know ducks are ducks right and if if ducks have reasonably good survival and they have high nest success and high production their populations go up. And that's exactly what's happening in the Dakotas. And, you know, there's some places uh, just north and east of Bismarck a little bit, an area that I hunt and travel through pretty frequently, that I would argue probably has as high a breeding lesser scop densities of anywhere on the planet. Hmm. And, and you drive around and you see these huge creches or amalgamated broods of scop in many places in the Dakotas. So, that population is doing very well here. It's not subject to the same pressures and declines that we're seeing in the core of their breeding range in the Western Boreal Forest. Well, I know the last two springs, we had a, a good push of them come through in the spring. And it's kind of neat. Like all of a sudden, one day you'll be driving by a pond you drive by every day. And it's just loaded, you know, loaded with, right. uh, with bluebills and ringbills. And then like three days later, it's, it's empty and they're gone again. Yeah. But, uh, well, this this year here, just because of the way the weather lined up, some of those cold, you know, we broke up pretty early. As you noted, the Canada geese got off, or some of the Canada geese got off early. 
So we warmed up, and then we had kind of what I would call setback weather, where we got cold spells, freezing temperatures. And there was a really interesting thing that happened in North Dakota was we had this sort of dam at I-94 that wouldn't allow the ducks to move north. So we had this big rush of canvasbacks and scop and ringnecks that essentially got parked here for about two weeks in, in I'd say, early April. And, and it was pretty impressive, the number of scop and redheads and cans in, that we, in ringers that we had around. And we saw it, you know, we've got a bunch of radio mark ringnecks and we saw some crazy things that those ringnecks were flying all the way up to Manitoba and then doubling back and coming all the way back to Southeast North Dakota. And those ducks were responding to those cold weather events and sort of shuffling around. And it was, it was an interesting spring that way. Well, let's talk uh, about teal. I went to the DNR roundtable this past winter in, in uh, Bloomington, and uh, ducks did not get the uh, amount of time uh, as I was hoping. Ducks, pheasants, it was all about uh, it was all about other stuff. We don't need to get into that discussion, but I was really hoping to talk about ducks, and it was like they lumped waterfowl. I remember correctly, they lumped waterfowl and pheasants into like one hour. Out of 15 hour-long breakout sessions, I think we had one hour to talk waterfowl and upland. I was, you know, which which is what I was there for mostly. Um, but we we talked about a number of things, and I I heard a couple of different discussions about an early teal season. So I wrote a, I wrote an article in Outdoor News, uh, kind of yep. following up on the roundtable, and then uh, some of my ideas on what we could do because Dennis Anderson brought it up with uh, with the guys in the meeting say you you think duck hunters are happy you put out this survey and you said the results said duck hunters are happy in minnesota why do you think duck hunters are happy and he said well overall the respondents said they were happy and and i think overall hunters are are happy but there are definitely some improvements that could be made and the biggest one i hear from people because i like to hunt late season is that the hunting really can get good for those mallards, particularly in the field, late season. You get into late right. November and early December, as long as they don't uh, get pushed by weather out a little bit earlier, you can have just some phenomenal hunting. And I know it gets a little cold and conditions get a little harsh and not everybody likes that, but you could say the same about standing waist deep in a slough swatting mosquitoes when it's 80 degrees. That That's right. not a lot of fun either. Right. So I thought a nice balance to keep everybody happy is we implement the teal season here in Minnesota. We're the only state that hasn't done it in that Mississippi flyway. We can get 16 days to hunt teal in Minnesota is what we're allowed. When, when populations are high. Yeah. It's a, it's a nine or a 16 day season, depending on the population status of blue wings. But in recent years, it's mostly 16. And either way, nine days or 16 for that matter, that, that gives you ample time to hunt ducks in september right and yeah you can't shoot brown mallards or or some of those wood ducks but that'll give you a chance at some of those early migrating teal and if you want to get out there and if you you know people complain about youth waterfowl day well if you want to bring kids out to waterfowl hunt shooting teal is great obviously mistake ducks are a big concern but i don't think there's as many mistake ducks as people think there are and if and if an early teal season can happen as many places as there are minnesota's got so many duck hunters i'd like to i'd like to give them a little bit of credit in duck id and if they don't have good duck id i'd like to think that implementing an early teal season is actually going to help people identify ducks a little bit better and I, you could have those 
those days of teal hunting in September, and he could open up our, our, our 60 day season here in Minnesota in October. And that would give us a chance to get into December a little bit. Um, do you think that would ever happen here? What do you think about that possibility? Well, I mean, I, I think, I don't know how Minnesota duck hunters feel about it. Um, but I'll, I'll start with the biology just for a second. What we know about blue wing teal and the reason that, remember what started this cascade is the southern states asked to increase the blue wing teal limit during the, the teal limit during special September teal seasons from four to six. And that was a justified request based on the fact that we teal continue to be, blue wing teal continue to be very, very lightly harvested. They, they migrate out of, they migrate so quickly that they're just not subjected to very much hunting pressure. Um, and even when you consider that a state like Louisiana or Texas that has this rich tradition of teal hunting and they're really good at it, um, even with those seasons, we just don't shoot many blue wings. And so, you know, when the, when the Southern states made that push, I think there were a number of Northern, Northern states in both the Mississippi and Central Flyway that said, well, what about us? You know, we're happy to provide more opportunities as long as it's biologically justified in the South. But how about we reconsider this, you know, uh, teal seasons in the North? And uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa proceeded with a spy blind study to implement a teal season. Um, my understanding is those those teal seasons, Wisconsin has just completed a very detailed duck hunter survey in it. And the feedback that I've seen as a result from that survey was the Wisconsin duck hunters really like the opportunity to have a teal season. Uh, you know, it's been part of the fabric of Iowa waterfall hunting for a long time. They used to have that early duck season before they implemented the teal season. Um, now, us in the Dakotas have adopted a different approach, which is we don't have a teal season here. And, and part of that is the logistics of doing a spy blind study. And um, we also probably have a greater number of non-teal species present, maybe harder for our hunters to comply. But what North Dakota and South Dakota have done is provide a bonus to blue wing or two bonus teal during the first 16 days of our regular duck season, and which I love. I mean, it gives me a great opportunity if conditions allow to go out and shoot eight green wing or blue wings, which I will happily do for the first couple of weeks of duck season. So, I mean, with a lot of these questions from, so biologically it's completely justified. I think that's anybody that's concerned about it, um, I think they can have great confidence that we're not going to do anything bad to the blue and teal population. This is really going to boil down to a social question in Minnesota, Brett, from my vantage point. And, and listen, I've been shouted down at meetings. I remember being at a Minnesota waterfowl symposium talking about the value and virtue of youth waterfowl day and being told I was ruining somebody's opening day of duck season. So that's a real feeling in Minnesota. I don't know how acute it is right now. Uh, I, I think it's kind of crappy, frankly, that we've got people opposing youth duck hunting um, because it may impact their opening day two weeks later. 
Yeah. I don't know if it does or it doesn't, but it seems a bit of a stretch to me. Um, but really, it's not for John Devney to say whether Minnesota should have a teal season. John Devney will say it's biologically warranted. It's really for Minnesota duck hunters to say, is this something we want to do? I will say I was surprised that Minnesota duck hunters haven't leaned in more on the two birds in the first 16 days of the regular season because that I think that represents a no-brainer opportunity to me. Um, so th- that's my feeling on it, Brett. I, just, I recognize that Minnesota's a place, and uh, being growing up there and I think a lot of my perspective was formed by being a young duck hunter in Minnesota and Minnesota duck hunters are incredibly passionate and incredibly conservation minded are probably more concerned about their harvest than duck hunters anywhere else in the country, frankly. And so there's a little bit of that old guard Norwegian conservatism (laughs) in place in Minnesota. And, and, and frankly, it's, you know, as a guy sitting here in Bismarck, I think it's a decision that needs to be made through a really good, robust dialogue between the DNR and duck hunters in Minnesota. I, I, it, it's biologically warranted. We're not going to destroy blue-winged hill populations with it. Um, do duck hunters want that opportunity or not? Well, you that I mean, right there, when you talk about it being biologically justified, where we're not going to harm the, the teal population by having it here in Minnesota is a pretty important point. But you're right. It becomes a social issue. And I I've had a lot of support for that idea from people, uh, generally younger generations. Uh, some of that old guard that you're talking about has uh, has criticized me heavily on some of those uh, some of those ideas and and uh, just was curious about my levels of sanity. Um, but I, I think, so this brings up another question, John, when you talk about the flyway councils, which seems when you, when I talk about, when I think about the, the, the flyway councils and the people making these decisions, I'm picturing like a secret society of Illuminati in a darkened, you know, <laughs> basement with candles lit around and chanting going on in the background. It's like, you don't, it's hard to try to contact these people or influence them or give them ideas or, or find out what is that an inherent problem with, with, uh, trying to enact change within the waterfowl structure, or is that an, a necessary part of setting federal type, uh, guidelines and, and regulations? Well, at least specific to the issue with teal, you don't have an issue with the council or the Fish and Wildlife Service. Sure. They've granted you that sure. opportunity, right? And, I mean, so I, courts will probably, you know, send me hate mail for saying it, but that decision rests with the DNR. He and, knows that. And yeah. Frankly, yeah, and, and that's a decision that needs to be made relative to the teal season between Minnesota duck hunters and the Minnesota DNR to, to sort of chart out a path. Yes, and I, and I don't want to interrupt you on that, but I should mention I've, I've been in discussion with Steve about this, and he has told me that there is going to be a public opinion survey coming from the Minnesota DNR about that subject. And I think it was supposed to come out in May, but because of the COVID situation, right. it's been pushed back. Um, the earliest I think any changes could come now would be 2022, and uh, we may see that survey this fall, potentially next spring. They just keep pushing everything back. But well, know, just on, on the point of teal season, Brett, remember for Minnesota to do a teal season, they what Minnesota has to demonstrate is they can be in compliance with non-target harvest. So 
the Minnesota DNR, if duck hunters decide they want to go this direction to have a defined teal season, they're going to have to do three, I think it's three years of spy blind studies to determine that non-target harvest does not exceed 30%. So that's one of the requirements that if you're going to be petitioning the Fish and Wildlife Service, they want to be able to show that you can comply with the non-target, with reasonable non non-target harvest and so that's that's a consideration as well so when when wisconsin did it they did it on an experimental basis with concurrence from the fish and wildlife service to use it as a three-year evaluation once that three-year evaluation is completed the state wants to proceed they have demonstrated that their duck hunters aren't going to shoot a million wood ducks then they are granted the status from the Fish and Wildlife Service. Interesting. So, but it needs to be done as a scientific verification. So that that's is that just spy blinds, or is there other ways to do that? And how how big of a sample do you need do you need to take to to uh, to hit that threshold? I think it's primarily spy blinds because um, if you use harvest surveys, I mean, yeah, there'd be a few guys that. You know, we know guys turn canvas back wings in when the canvas back season's closed. So we know there's we know there's harvest, um, and there'd be a few guys that have turned wood duck wings in during the the September sampling period for spring teal or for early teal season. But I'm not. It's mostly done by spy blind, so it's fairly intensive, um, and and but that's one of the requirements that the states need to go through to document they're not going to be having an, an, a significant harvest on anything other than blue wing or other than teal. So let's go a different route with the same result. Um, one of the other options is just adding days to the Mississippi flyway. What are the, uh, how, how does that get accomplished? One of the, one of those guys in the old guard uh, complained to me too, that that's just going to, that's going to demolish the mallard population. Uh, if we were to add days to the Mississippi Flyway, what positives and negatives could result from that? Yeah, well, the, it's gonna it's gonna help Minnesota um, because, as you mentioned, you know, you go from say Fergus Falls to the south, you're gonna have an opportunity to take advantage of mallards that are roosting on rivers, feeding cornfields, uh, using the Minnesota, the Mississippi, some of those big lakes in southern and western Minnesota. It really doesn't help the South very much because if you're Arkansas, you open your duck season the week before Thanksgiving, you're shooting to the 31st of January. Sure. So what does it, you know, so we can start the duck season in Arkansas on November the 10th, as an example, or the 14th. So those decisions are made at the flyway scale. And there has to be concurrence from all the flyway states. Now, if you looked at Matt, what's happened with mallard harvest over the last 20 years, it's declined. And we shouldn't be surprised it's declined. We've had a declining number of hunters. Mm-hmm. We've had a declining number of days of field because our hunting population is getting older. And you can see it as clear and black and white, the Mississippi and Central Flyway, that our mallard harvest is going down. Now, the, you know, if you gave the, let me back up, the 
Mississippi and Central Flyway and the Fish and Wildlife Service have been going through this big exercise referred to as double looping, where they're going back and testing all the assumptions they've been making about harvest management to recast the vision for harvest management in the Mississippi and Central Flyway into the future. And those two flyways kind of have to work together because they're shooting out of shared stocks, right? The mallard that's produced in North Dakota has a high likelihood of being killed either in the Mississippi or the Central Flyway. So because those resources are so inextricably linked, they need to work together. So they're, they've been going through this horribly long exercise that probably should have been resolved four years ago, but it goes on and on and on and on and on, and I don't know when it's going to be resolved. There's been this negotiation between the Mississippi and Central Flyways. Now, there's all sorts of points to negotiate over. There was a proposal in the Central Flyway that we should allow any of our sort of line item ducks, wood ducks, hen mallards, pintail, redheads, canvasback, scop, be set at three birds a day and walk away from it. That harvest is pretty low on those species. Anyways, just say you can either shoot this, this many ducks, no more three apiece of these guys. Hmm. And the Central Flyway also proposed to allow a sixth Drake Mallard in the bag. Oh. Um, now, that's all fallen apart because the Central and the Mississippi Flyway are fighting over stuff. But the Mississippi Flyway, especially the mid-latitude states, places like Illinois and Missouri, would materially benefit from another seven, 10 days, 14 days in the season. Well, the Central Flyway, of course, doesn't because we already have a 74-day season <laughs> yeah. and we have a high plains season. So all these negotiations, much like the situation in Minnesota, where you've got a guy that likes going to his traditional place on the first weekend in October, don't screw up the duck hunting before me, and I don't want the duck season open when my marsh is going to be under two feet of ice. All these negotiations take place amongst all the warring factions, and it gets pretty complicated. Now, there's no doubt that, you know, I think the estimate was going to a six-strike mallard in the central flyway was going to have trivial consequences for the harvest rate, but the Mississippi flyway didn't think it was a good idea for a variety of reasons. So hmm. all this stuff is done... It's not the Illuminati, and it's not a secret society, but what you have to imagine is a bunch of people coming around the table that have very different perspectives to represent their duck hunters. Um, you know, Larry Reynolds in Louisiana doesn't care as much about bluebills as Steve Quartz does, right? Or canvasbacks. And so trying to accommodate all that perspective and set a set of rules that we can all play by is is very complicated business it well you know it's like trying to manage for walleyes or whitetails too and like in the state of minnesota trying to manage for whitetails in the northeast versus say the southeast is completely exactly. different it's very different yeah it, it's tough They're, to calling them the same animal yeah, yeah. it's almost hard right it, it's it's definitely tough to do uh, and I understand that. And everybody's got a different opinion, of course, on how things should be done. Um, 
it, I, sometimes I wish it was a little bit easier to communicate and maybe a, a, it didn't take as long to try to enact some, some change. But we kind of talked about this a little bit. You touched on it. But another discussion that came up at the roundtable, albeit briefly, was uh, the, the limit on hen mallards. You brought up Drake mallards, but the limit on hen mallards. And when you look at Canada... It's like, yeah, if it flies, it dies, man, you know, right. <laughs> you know pretty much. Now, I want to ask, this is a two-parter, is uh, the difference in Canada, is it just because there's uh, less pressure up there? Is it because the coloration on, on mallards is sometimes, you know, drag, they're all brown early in the season? Uh, or is it just a different philosophy in, in duck management up there? And would that, do you foresee somebody brought the question of lowering the hen mallard limit here in uh, in Minnesota which I'm you know I'm not encouraging shooting more hens of course but I don't see shooting hens as maybe as detrimental as some people do um, what's your take on that well I mean first of all Canada Canada has a very different approach um, and Canada has a very different approach because they don't influence harvest on very many species um, White fronts, they shoot a significant percentage of white fronts in, in Saskatchewan, and they shoot a lot of black ducks. But when you compare the harvest of almost any duck species from Canada to the United States, it just doesn't matter that much. And that's even with a situation where we are in Saskatchewan, where there's more Americans some years hunting in Saskatchewan than there are Saskatchewan residents. And those guys are good hunters. Uh, a goodly number of them are being guided or outfitted, and they're killing a lot of ducks. But when you compare it to where we were, you know, if you go back to 1974, both Saskatchewan and Alberta used to shoot more mallards in Arkansas. In 1974, Arkansas really? shot less mallards in Saskatchewan and Alberta. Wow. And, and if you look at it today, it isn't even close, right? I mean, Saskatchewan shooting 200,000 mallards a year. Like it's, it's a pittance compared to what it was, and it's a pittance compared to where it is everywhere else. So I think the Canadians have looked at it and said, well, man, we're really not driving the bus on harvest. Hmm. Um, so we're not going to worry about it the way the Americans worry about it. And as an indication of that, um, you know, there's been a longstanding four pintail limit in Saskatchewan and Alberta. And the Alberta, the Canadian Wildlife Service said you can do away with it. So they're going to be up to eight pintails a day <laughs> in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Really? And believe me, the guys in California and the Texas coast and places where there's lots of pintail are screaming bloody murder because they're going to be at one again, right? Yeah. Now, so is that the Canadians doing it right? I don't know. You can make the argument maybe we're doing it wrong. No. Um, and so I think... Yeah, so there is a there is a different mindset, but it's it's a mindset born out of relatively low harvest pressure. It's Saskatchewan's a hell of a lot different place than Minnesota is in yeah. terms of hunter numbers, days of field, relative impact on harvest. In Minnesota, Minnesota is one of the few places that when Dr. Todd Arnold did some really good, Dr. Todd Arnold, who's at the University of Minnesota, uh, did some really good harvest assessment. The one place he could find out additive harvest was in mallards in minnesota and that's because minnesota's always had a relic not certain minnesota doesn't have the duck hunter numbers today that were there when i 
was hunting there in the late 1990s and before, but Minnesota still has a lot of duck hunters and they're good duck hunters and they're committed duck hunters and, and they shoot a lot of ducks. So, I mean, you know, Wisconsin, who for many, many years was in lockstep with Minnesota on, on hen mallard restrictions has now, I think, given up on them. I think they're going to two, they're going to proceed with two hen mallards, which breaks long held precedent um, in Wisconsin. And, and I think it's just this growing realization. Again, it all comes back down to the number of duck hunters we have. It's the number of super black eagles and berettas in the field every day. And, and our numbers of hunters and our number of days of field are just down drastically from where they were 20 years ago. So we're, we're fighting on, in, 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 on one hand, we're ascribing the world that we used to live in to make current harvest decisions when our harvest matters, frankly, quite a bit less than it did 20 years ago. Now, with that said, um, you know, I, I'm, you know, I've still got enough Minnesotan in me um, to be, you know, to be really careful about hen mallards. And we know in Minnesota, um, mallards produced in Minnesota are really important to Minnesota hunters, right? And it's different than if you're in Arkansas, right? Because you're, you're getting ducks from lots of places. Minnesota is getting lots of ducks from lots of places. But when it comes to mallards, a pretty significant percentage of them are what's locally sort of home homeborn, home raised. And and so it warrants it warrants a good conversation that's informed by one part good science and one part good interaction and dialogue with hunters about the kind of policy they want to put in place. I will say I don't think a second dead hen mallard is going to recruit a bunch of new hunters yeah. or keep a bunch of guys from hanging up their waders. I don't, I think the problems are bigger than that. Um, but do you, do you keep a regulation on the books when this best available science doesn't suggest it's a thing to do? Then we're talking about strictly a social question. All right. I got an important question here for you now. You're hunting a slew, John. You got a six pack, six pack of mallards spinning high, of course, because they're mallards. And you got a Drake shoveler on the deck coming straight into your decoys. What do you do? I will always wait for the mallards. Oh. Now, now that's only because I don't live in Minnesota anymore. You know, I've had the benefit of I, I'm on my 22nd year living in Bismarck, right? So I've had the opportunity to shoot lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of ducks. Sure. And and I found I've gotten really kind of funny and picky. For example, I don't shoot many gadwalls, which if I was in Louisiana, I'd probably get drawn and quartered for saying <laughs> I don't shoot gadwalls. But I don't particularly like to eat gadwalls. So, so, I, so because I've had the opportunity to shoot a pile of them over the years, um, I'm going to shoot, in my opinion, I'm going to go out and shoot a pretty bag of ducks. And if that means I'm one last duck at the end of the day, the world really doesn't owe John Devney one more dead duck. So what? I'd let the spoonie, I'd let the spoonie go, but my daughter's going to be start duck hunting with uh, me this year. I'd let her torch the spoonie. You know, and that, that I was waiting for you to say, it depends on the situation or who's with me, but what you answered is exactly where I'm getting to be. And I never thought, 
you know, I, I've duck hunted for a number of years and I always was just kind of an easygoing opportunist. You know, I didn't care. I liked shooting a mixed bag, seeing different ducks. I always appreciated the different looks, the colors, the, the noises, the, 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 you know, the habits of these birds. But I'll tell you what, now, I, and this is why I'm pushing so much for a later season so I can shoot those big, plump, fat, juicy, fatty mallards late in the season because right. I love roasting a whole mallard. Right. Eating those ducks has become so much more important to me. And right. I, I mean, I love watching, you know, and I'll be honest, gadwall are, are still kind of fun because they're, they're a bigger duck, kind of like a mallard, but they're so, so much stupider, you know, they're, so, right. they're so much, so much easier to decoy. Sometimes on those, those tough days, it's hard to pass up on a, on a gadwall bombing in, but I'm, I've definitely, I never thought I'd say this, but I'm definitely becoming a mallard snob in one sense because I like to eat them so much, so much. More well, and I, I, so first of all, you asked me the wrong question because <laughs> when I'm going to kill the spoonie isn't when I identify it as a nice Drake spoonie, I will, I will shoot a spoonie deader in hell every year when I'm hardwired thinking about shooting blue wing teal and I'll see that flash of blue on their wing yeah, sure. and I'll get totally caught up in it <laughs> and I'll shoot it and the dog will be bringing it back. And I'm like, yeah, that's a really big blue wing teal. And so that's when I will shoot a spoonie, but it's not right. because I'm going to shoot the spoonie because I'm opportunistic. It's because I made a, I was too cute in on blue wings and not enough on the face. See, but, now that's why we can't have an early teal season, John. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's yeah. Well, listen, accidents happen. And, 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 and listen, and, and they happen to me and I'm, I do this more than the average bear. Right. So, but, but you're right about eating the birds. And what I found with myself is not necessarily turning into a mallard snob. It's turning into a teal snob. Well, teal and, are good too. And, and I'm, I'm not going to shoot pin feathery mallards on opening day. I'm mm. just not going to do it. And I'm not going to shoot skinny pin feathery pintails. I'm going to shoot blue wing teal. And, and they're the perfect duck as far as I'm concerned. They're easy to clean. They're fat as soon as the season starts. And I'd much rather have six or eight blue wing teal to take home and serve to my family than dealing with a scrawny mallard or pintail that's full of pin feathers. So I, I actually, my duck snob thing is evolves over the season. I'm a, I'm a mallard snob late, but I'm a teal snob early because it's all much like you. It's about the food. And I, those, that's what I want to eat early in the duck season. Lots of teal. What's going on with uh, Delta waterfowl right now? I mean, you know, obviously it's a weird year, right? I mean, we're, um, we start our fiscal year and then a global pandemic kicks in. And so, um, but, you know, I'm proud of the work our management team's done. Um, you know, we've had to take some defensive actions with, you know, for example, we don't know if we'll be able to hold fundraising events this year. And that's a pretty significant revenue stream for us. But, but we were able to manage all this, I think, by being proactive and being proactive very early in the in the crisis that we were able to retain our programming and so you know we just we're doing what we always do we're working for ducks and duck hunters every day um just today uh the 17th of june the senate passed the great american outdoors act yeah which it's going to be one of a big moment in history and in you might not 
if the casual duck hunter looked at that piece of legislation, he'd say, well, what's in it for me? Well, um, one of the things we worked on in that piece of legislation um, was to get a part of what was originally called the Restoring Our Parks Act, or ROPA, to consider the Fish and Wildlife Service because all that all the energy in the Senate was focused just on parks. And listen, we have a huge park maintenance backlog and the American public loves our parks and they need to be fixed up. But we have a $1.7, $1.8 billion deferred maintenance backlog on refuges. And that means broken down pumps, broken down water control structures, breached levees, crummy boat launches, all the things that we need to manage ducks and manage duck hunting on national wildlife refuges was was in in a state of disarray. And, and the, the legislation the Senate passed today will put $100 million a year for mm. five years into those refuges. That's a wow. big outcome for duck hunters. Um, and, you know, the work that we do every day on, in, you know, predator management, hen house, we've got a great research roster. Uh, we're, you know, planning. We lost the opportunity to do a bunch of our R3, pro, our Hunter R3 programming but we'll get that stuff spun up again in the fall. But I mean, we're just doing the best we can in the environment we find ourselves in. And uh, a few more Zoom calls and trips to Washington, D.C., but uh, things are going real well. Thank you for asking, Brett. Well, one of the big problems for organizations like yours has been the the fundraising, uh, the lack of fundraising options. So I noticed you guys are giving away a truck. Is that what I saw on the website? Yeah, we're giving away a truck. Um, finite number of tickets, hundred dollars a piece, and you can drive away with a brand new Ford pickup, which is, uh, better than your average raffle that you're getting from your hockey player or most of your local hockey player or booster club. And that's been something, boy, I tell you, Brett, that was, I started with Delta in 98 and I think it was two or three years old at that point. So that's been something we've done for many, many years. And it's, uh, always gets great support. All right. John Devney, last part of our interview today. I'm bringing back a feature we haven't done in a while, but it's called More Than You Ever Wanted to Know About the American Shoveler. Today, More Than You Ever Wanted to Know About the American Shoveler. It's a multiple choice question for you. Uh, to me, I feel like uh, the, the Shoveler is one of the most underrated ducks out there, especially when drakes have that breeding plumage in the spring. I think they're just one of the uh, the most striking ducks in the spring. I think the plumage is great. The hens have a unique way of deterring predators uh, when she's on the nest and she's got eggs down there. Does she, A, have an ear-piercing screeching noise when predators are near? Does she, B, fly above the predator and dive bomb it until it leaves? Does she, C, defecate on her eggs or does she d unleash hellfire and fury with an actual shovel what's your answer john c and i just had this conversation <laughs> with a friend of mine this week and that when you're nest searching you always have to have a couple of dairy queen dairy queen napkins in your pocket because <laughs> if you're nest searching in north dakota you're going to come across shoveler nests and they're going to crap on their eggs and there's something about shoveler crap relative to other ducks. Scop are pretty bad about this too, and they're 
defecation, to use your very nice term, <laughs> is stinky as well. But yeah. shovelers will cover that <laughs> nest and crap when you flush them when you're nest searching. So the answer unequivocally C. That is correct. John Devney, Delta Waterfall. Once again, love talking ducks with you. Thanks for the time here on the show. You bet. Thanks for having me, Brett. We'll talk later. This has been the Finding Fur and Feathers Hunting Podcast, part of the Sporting Journal Radio family. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts or visit us at findingfurandfeathers.com. And make sure to like our sponsors. They're pretty cool. Now is the time to start thinking about chasing big walleyes on Devil's Lake. Get on the fish at Haybale Heights Campground and Resort. Haybale Heights makes it easy for you to make memories on legendary Devil's Lake with guided fishing and lodging packages. Or bring your own boat and rent one of their cabins on East Bay. Haybale Heights offers a private marina, fish cleaning station, and the opportunity to relax and enjoy your bucket list trip to Devil's Lake, North Dakota. To book your trip, visit haybaleheights.com. That's haybaleheights.com. Hey, anglers, looking for a destination where walleyes, fresh air, and fish fries are a way of life? Look no further than the famous waters of Lake of the Woods. From Bedette and the Rainy River to the main lake up to the Northwest Angle. Here, you'll enjoy the best walleye catch rate in the state. Maybe you'll pursue world-class sturgeon, pike, or muskies. Plus, you'll find lots of full-service resorts offering charter boats, delicious meals, and lots of Minnesota nice. Come experience the walleye capital of the world. Come experience Lake of the Woods. Catch the details at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. If Trophy Lake Trout and Monster Northern Pike are on your list this summer, book a trip to Tazan Lake Lodge in northwestern Saskatchewan. Everything from numbers to big fish. See pictures, videos, and more at tazanlake.com. This is quite the fishery. Our five-star chef will feed you well after a day of chasing giants on Tazan Lake. Dream come true. Get rates, dates, and more of what you can expect. It could be the best fish you ever had in your life. At tazanlake.com. That's tazanlake.com. Tazan Lake Lodge is a proud partner of Tourism Saskatchewan.